the reason why I came out is just kind of take a deep breath and, and see where we're holding. We're, we already are. Our general direction is exploring the idea of the soul and getting more in touch with it based on the notion that the more capable we are of connecting to, relating to, understanding, articulating the movements of Anushama, the more capable we are of having a real connection to our Kachapoku. Because if a person has an emotionally impoverished world, they can't really connect to other people. If a person has a spiritually, if a person has a spiritually impoverished internal world, he can't connect to Hashem. So that's the, the, the direction. In order, in order to do so, we started playing around with it. I thought, well, the best, possibly one of the best places we could go to to help us with, with this is because this really becomes the focus of the first part of the Tanya is going to the Tanya. Once we got to the Tanya, we started reading the introduction because we wanted to get a sense of, well, you know, if he's going to give us instructions for use of the book, we might, we might as well read them. And he comes up with this astonishing idea that you can't really use a book to convey um, the lessons that are intimately transferred between teacher and student. And therefore, what, what in the world am I doing by writing this book? And that's how it begins. And he explains it because when, when you're reading a text, the text that you're reading will be assimilated and understood dependent on your preconceived notions and your intelligence and your background. And you, you have two people reading, reading a text and one will be able to see a world in it because he's just got that background, that, that skill, that, that, that experience. And the other one will see just a very simple sentence. So a book is not a good way of, it's not a good way, it's, it's, a, it's a very limited has a limited capacity to to give over uh, wisdom. As, as a, a segue, when we're discussing this, we're also discussing that he does mention that in Sifre Kodesh, because they are imbued with a certain eternal ingredient, if you're if you if you if you're up to it, you can actually it will speak to you in a very specific language that is relevant to you and your life. Any any one of these any one of these holy books, but you have to be capable of getting getting it out of it, and that may not happen. But once he said that, he did man, mention that, and everyone can get what they need because everyone's got their own perspective. Which then he explained was why Beisham Beisilal can fundamentally oppose one another, which led us into a discussion about, well, then what is absolute truth? It can't mean one truth, because we see that based on myself, they absolutely inherently different things, and they're both considered to be true. So absolute truth doesn't mean a single truth. It means a um, truthful understanding of the moment based on where I'm standing at. And if I'm standing in a position different to yours, I'll have a truthful experience of the moment, which will be different from your truthful experience of the moment. Were we all to be sitting around in a circle, staring at a single object, we'll all be seeing a different facet of the object. Each of our experiences will be a coherent experience of the object. Each one, however, will be different because your positioning will be different. And since we do have an individual component to our experience in this world, our perspective of if we're talking about the Torah being in the center of our focus and we are sitting at different places in that circle around it, each of us will see the Torah and each of us will see something very different. And the Torah supposedly in its entirety will be a conglomeration of the totality of all those experiences. 
and that could be something along the lines of what's called Shivim Panim Torah. There are 70 facets to the Torah. So when Beis Shammai looks from his perspective, he sees that this is what the, that's, he sees this in the Torah. And when Beis Hila looks from his perspective, he sees that in the Torah. They both are seeing the Torah, but when you put those things together, they're completely and mutually exclusive. The way we illustrated it was holding a book between two people like this, and I would say to Daniel, well, what do you see on the cover of this book? Gold letters. Gold letters. Do you see gold letters on the cover of the book? No. Well, who's telling the truth? Well, both of you are telling the truth, because you're both describing what you see, and you're both describing the book. But since you're sitting in different places, and you're seeing different aspects of the book, so when we try to say that you're saying the same thing, that's wrong. When you're both saying something which is true, that's right. So now, in this moment, we're experiencing, we're all experiencing something very different, and even the words, as I say them, will be integrated and assimilated in all of our minds in very different ways, because we all have our own perspective, it's based on our in the deeper spiritual sense, it's called our Shurish Neshama, the origin of our soul. But in a more practical way, it's based on the circumstances of our life, our inherent cognitive abilities, etc., 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 which created a differentiated experience for each and every one of us in every moment of life. Good? So, so now, the question we really need to ask is when does, if so, reality even become a topic of discussion surely that just is the same as saying pluralism everyone lives with their own reality in their own head and this is no different so i want to clarify that this is not what what's being said in the world of pluralism uh, or let's say as it's popularized it means that i have the right to create my own narrative and use that as a model of the way i live life and so do you and therefore there can be no arguing about who's got a better way of living life or a worse way of living life because we all realize we're just making it up as we go along which is a little bit like moral relativism where there's no absolute moral scale there's no kind of inherent good and bad but whatever i believe in in terms of my model i have the right to work with that am, am, am i saying anything which people are feeling is mildly relevant to their lives or is it like is, oh golly gosh like this you and i so i come to you and i say so so Bart, i really think it's bad that people use disposable products it's inherently harmful to the environment and it's causing gigantic islands of plastic in the sea which is killing the 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 the, the wildlife in the sea and I'm, therefore i think you cannot use disposable products do you agree with me no you don't agree with me no, pretend you don't agree with me. Uh, I don't agree with you. Or do you want to be that position? Yes. Okay, so I'll be that opposite position. I really think it's inherently wrong that people limit my own personal decision as to how I want to run my life. So, for example, um, I'm, 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 I have a family where they are, on an average meal, let's say on Shabbos, I'm catering for over 30 people. The, the work that's, that's required to manage that in terms of resources if we're talking about not using disposables is literally hours and hours of preparation washing the dishes sorting them the the physical labor is intensified um, for my own mental stability and my ability to welcome people into my home i think that even though environmental environmental considerations are there but they don't trump a healthy functioning communal environment which is a much more core component of human survival than 
wildlife in the Atlantic. And therefore, I champion the cause of disposable usage. Okay? Now, you, you can say to me, you can say to me, well, you know what, I disagree with you. And I say, well, okay, you believe what you believe. And I, you believe that marine life is more important. And I believe that community life is more important. So who's right? Well, you believe that. I believe that. Well, who's right? You believe it. I believe it. There's no, there's no right and wrong. That, that means that's your value system. In your value system, marine life is on the top of a hierarchy. In my value system, community is on the top of my value system and saving myself the um, labor of, of what they would. And it could be even more extreme. It could be that I just don't want to put in, you know, even on an average day, I don't want to have the hassle of washing the dishes and therefore I must draw the disposal and use just throwing the garbage. And you may say that's inherently wrong because my comfort is causing the harm of others. And I say, well, okay, that's what you believe. I believe differently. So we are both making up a narrative. We have a model of the world based on the value system, and we're both seeing it differently. And moral relativism means you have the right to believe the way you believe. I have the right to believe what I believe, and never, never the twain shall meet, because there's no absolute truth. There's no way of defining well, what is what is it? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it right to use as well? Is it wrong to use as well? I don't know. You know, it's, it's all up for grabs. You have this really kind of quirky thing in American states. You can literally do something which on one side of the border is unethical and you cross over and it's the it's the epitome of ethics uh, a classic example is euthanasia or even assisted suicide if a person is suffering from some kind of pain and if you go to places like i think belgium it could even be emotional pain um i, I remember i read an article about a woman uh, that she was going through a depression and she decided she'd rather not live so she booked an appointment with a doctor that assists people in taking their own lives and I think there's a there's an organization which is called uh, it's not called Gravitas but it's very similar to that um, and they book appointment for her she left a note for her son because she wasn't in good terms with him and her neighbors drove her to the hospital where they administered a, um, a fatal dose of I don't know what it was and they arranged the burial she had everything planned and she, yeah, she was like, I don't know, 50-something. And that was allowing her the choice, the freedom of choice to end her own life because she chose to do so. That was a practice of the ultimate ethical right of a human being. You cross over the border, and that will be considered murder, and the doctor will be put in prison. So on the one side of the border, it will be considered the ultimate highest moral value, and on the other side of the border, it's a crime. So the nature of moral relativism means that everyone's got the right to make it up as a go along because there's no absolute truth and therefore there's no coherent thing. So now, I don't, I, I'm just giving that as a contrast to the notion of machloikas or difference of opinion when it comes to, like, say, Beis Shem, Beis Hilal. That's not what's going on with Beis Shem, Beis Hilal. It's not that they're both making it up and they're morally relativistic. In the world of moral relativism, there's no focal point that you're deriving your wisdom from. It's self-generated. In the world of Torah, there's a focus on a central central entity. That entity is called the Torah. And the point is to extract from that entity a coherent vision of what it's representing. So the source of the wisdom is externalized, and the processing is getting that external wisdom within me. But because I'm occupying a different perspective, I'm standing in a different space, so I have to make sure the thing that I see and then extract will differ based on my position. You follow me?
not so much. I'll give you an example. Let me. Yeah, it's not normally this, uh, this, 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 this complex. Oh, you, maybe you're all just tired. Maybe I'm just explaining things badly. Maybe this is boring. Maybe it's all of the above. You're tired. I'm explaining it badly, and it's boring. <laughs> I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. Listen. Really nice responses in the most affectionate way. I guess. Say I've got this book over here. And we've got two people looking at two different parts of the book. And they both are, they both, I'm asking them, I'm asking them a question. The question I'm asking them is, what do you see? What do you derive? What can you learn from your vision? And Ralph will say, I can learn that there's a blue book with gold writing and says, Likute Amorim Tanya. And that will be a true reflection of the wisdom he's gained from looking at this book. Then he will say, I see a blank cover, which is navy blue. And that will be a true reflection of what he's gained from looking at the book. Yeshai will say he sees a spine. It's very narrow. They see these big rectangular. And on the book, on the spine of the book, it says, and then it's got a little symbol and it's got a, um, a brand in. And I will say, I just see white pages. All of us are telling the truth. What does the truth mean? It means when we're studying a entity that's in the middle of us, we are all faithfully connected to what we see and we're processing the thing in front of us. So the, the source of our understanding is external, but it's integrated with authenticity and coherence. I'm saying what I see and that's actually what's there. Good. Step one, Gabe. Step two would be, what would be if I held this book between all of us and we all had some kind of Khalila visual impairment? And Ralph's problem was he was colorblind and didn't know it. And Dave's problem was he saw letters that didn't exist. And Yishai's problem was he saw double. And my problem was I saw unicorns. So we're all looking at this book and now we're reporting what we see. Ralph says he sees a red book. Dane says he sees he sees the book with lettering on, which says um, coming up next week. Yishai says he sees a many many duplicates of a single text, and I see I see unicorns. So we're all focusing on something, but we're all misaligning the description. We're not gaining something from outside. We're superimposing from inside onto outside, and we're saying what's over there. It's actually inside, it's not outside. Good? Moral relativism means either that there's nothing that we're looking on the center, or if you are looking at something in the center, it's like taking from inside and imposing on the outside. The study of Torah, we're starting where we are not the source of understanding. The source of understanding is the thing we are studying. But when we're studying it, because we're occupying a different space, the thing we're going to be able to perceive is going to be different. When is that process true? When it's coherent that the thing I'm seeing is the thing I'm understanding and witnessing. That there's a coherence, that there's authenticity, that there's a direct relationship of integrity between what I'm seeing and what I'm understanding. Even though I'm going to be understanding different from Ralph. <coughs> And different from Joel, but I'm understanding that based on my perspective. Good? Yes? Now, the Hiddish over here is as follows. What gives me the clarity of vision to make sure that I'm 
seeing what's there and not superimposing from within me on that. You with me? How, when, when is that vision clear and when is that vision distorted? When am I projecting and when am I witnessing, receiving? The answer to that question is when my character traits are refined and my, in using modern terminology, I'm not in the world of my ego. I'm not in the world of, in Hebrew, my midas. I'm in the world of my bad midas. I'm not in the world of my selfish, indulgent perspective. I'm in the world of my true, higher self. Then, what I perceive will be correct. When I'm in my lower self, then what I perceive will be distorted. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. What would be a distortion? A distortion would follows. I'm looking at a text in Torah. And what I see from the text in Torah um, is starting point, the starting point is like this. I want to stay in bed till very late and not, and not um, wake up for saying the Shema. And I happen to be studying the laws of Krishna. Because I have a distorted desire, when I study those laws, I may very subtly misconstrue them to say that you don't really have to wake up that time. It's a good thing to do. If you don't, that's okay as well. And I won't be able to actually get access to the the um, the topic in front of me, the point of stay in front of me, because I'll be blocked. Uh, by some kind of desire, indulgence, either I won't understand it or won't understand its depth or I'll subtly misconstrue it because it will be too threatening to my lower self. It may limit me in terms of my sleep, it may limit me in terms of what I want to eat, it may limit me in terms of what... So I'll, I'll not be able to access it. In order for me to access it, I have to be clean. I have to be clean. Otherwise, I'm going to see a distorted version of what's in front of me. When I'm clean, so then it's very much like this. What our bad midas do, what our ego does, it's imagine that I'm looking through a window outside at a view, and you ask me what I see. So if the window is a clear plane of glass, I'll tell you exactly in exact detail with accuracy what I see. If the window is um, greased over with a series of um, dirt and it's, 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 it's slightly opaque in certain areas, so then I'll, I won't really be able to tell you what I see. I'll, I'll make up more than I'll be able to describe. And if it gets opaque enough, what I'll see is a reflection of myself. Do people have different opinions? How do you know the one, maybe the one seeing what's really there and the one just sort of... Right. So if it's me and you having different opinions, oh, yeah. it's perfectly okay. If it's Beisham Beis Hillel, our um, tradition teaches us that they were very, very lofty people. The only people that make it big in the world of Torah, they have to have two components. They have to have intellectual sophistication, deep wisdom and understanding, and they have to be hugely emotionally consolidated and healthy personas, meaning they have to have fantastic medis. Because if they have one of those two, they are intellectually great, 
but they don't have the character traits to support it, or if they have the character traits to support but not the intellectually great, then they can't be a conduit of Torah. And let's say the example of the book. Ralph says he sees the, the gold letters. Right. Um, Danny. Danny says he saw blue. Right. Right. Ralph doesn't know what Danny saw. I mean, he could say, oh, Danny saw, didn't really see it. But he did see it. Right. Okay. True. True. What you're saying is true. Therefore? Well, you, you'll argue with them and you say, that's not what I'm seeing. That's not right. And you'll argue and they will create an argument. But underneath the argument, there'll be a certain level of respect. And that's why Basham Basil, even though they had, they had incredible conflict, but they still treated each other with immense respect and love. Ralph, do you want to ask something? Yeah. Well, I mean, you sort of addressed it by, by, by specifying that when me and Danny were answering the question, I like we're answering we're answering the question. What do you see? Not what is in front of you, because we both had incomplete information in that situation. I could see right. a, like a cover that says that, but I don't know that it's a whole book. Maybe I can't see the pages. Good. He doesn't know what the what it is at all. He only sees the cover. Nice. Like, but that does. But that means that we really shouldn't be able to comment at all on on like what are you on what what is it. Because you have incomplete information. Right. Well, you're talking about a different thing, like figuring out in total, like right. like how the world works. Right. And like. So that's true that there is an element of lack of completion. When because we we're only one part of this big puzzle, so we're only ever going to see a fragment. You're right, Tommy. Got it. Um. The person who's seeing the front cover of the book. Yeah. They're 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 seeing a book. I mean, they don't need to see all the aspects of a book in order to project the the book that they're seeing. I mean, one person that's seeing it is actually seeing what it is. I mean, what if the pages are blank? Right, but. It says these. It's, the book is called I mean, The Secrets of Life. Just told the, the, the pages. You don't even know what it said. Yeah. So I, I'm not quite sure what you're saying. So I think what I'll do is I'll just ask Yaakov what he had to say. I was just going to ask or expound upon the fact that um, when we talk about this uh, central framework of subjectiveness and argumentation and different uh, opinions on a matter of you know, not seeing the full picture of what that book fully entails, how does that fit into the objective reality of Halakha? So, I mean, you, you, you said the phrase as if it was true, right? The objective reality of Halakha. That's obviously not a true phrase. Because there is no objective reality of Halakha. There are many, many different paths in Halakha. And what one person will say is perfectly okay, someone else will say that, and that's totally forbidden. So it's the same thing. Um, Jakey. Everyone's looking at children from a different perspective. Well, I mean, we want to continue with the book analogy. Yes. Um, from where we are. And yes. 
I mean, seemingly we're here and where we are is because how we're viewing it is from our nature nurture. I think that's okay. Good. Um, and, and 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 I guess leading off from that, then how how do you, I guess, sort of you say you want to cleanse yourself, you know, clean the mirror or 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 bring out your best inside of you. But Dafka, what you have is is parts that are unclean and like you're Dafka where you are because of. Oh, this is not okay. Excellent. I'm glad you said this. Even when you are completely and totally refined, not even, only when you are completely and totally refined, then do you gain that perspective. Meaning your highest self is different from Ariel's highest self. Your completely shalane, perfect self still has its own specific nuanced position, which differentiates you from Gabe. But that, but that position is also fundamentally attached to my environment around me. Your environment just right. acted as a prompt and a stimulus to bring out certain things which are innate there already. The most basic block of a person's being is in the neshama, and everything flows down from that. So you can never be anything else than your neshama. The environment can't bring something into you that you never had before. It can only stimulate things which are latent and bring them into action. For example, just a simple analogy. Your environment can't teach you language. The human being has got a language center when born that can then interpret the to be a sentence, which is, which is incredible in any language that's exposed to in, the, in those, especially in those formative first, I think, two to three years of the child's life. But if there'd be no language learning component in the brain of a human, you could goobledy-goob all day long, the child would never ever learn to speak. So it's not that the environment is creating the language. The environment is stimulating a latent potential in a given way. So for example, if you speak to the child in English, the language the child will learn is English. Mandarin, Mandarin. Koza, Koza. Vukhule, Vukhule, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not because the environment created that language. The environment enlisted the latent power and gave it its um, context. And it's, it's like it's the hard drive and the soft drive. It gave it its software. It hasn't moved you, I guess, hypothetically, around the table to view. Correct. Okay. Correct. Any other questions before we gently move on? Tomer. Well, yeah, just go back to what I said before. Yes, go. What if the question is, not what are you seeing, but what what is what are you looking at? And, and, there's, right. an and there's an objectively true answer. Well, you can't see what is because you've only got one perspective. So if I say to you, well, what's on the other side? So I don't know what's on the other side. I can only see this side. I don't know what's there. If you ask me, what am I seeing? I can answer the question. If you, if you ask me, what is out there? How can I answer the question? I don't know. But I don't get how that generalizes on, onto her life. You can see all the other perspectives. You are you saying you can? Right, yeah. Uh, I think this view would be everyone looking at the book or discussing what they're seeing and then okay. to uh, one thing to come up Let's with now, okay, 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 good. Okay, 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 good, 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 good. So now, now we've clarified the concept. Now you'd like to see, well, how does that is that implemented in our learning and in our halakhic observance? Yes? Right. That's okay. okay. So let's start off with Stam Gemara. 
We learn Gemara. In the Gemara, there's a machlokes, Rav Yehuda and Rav Nachman, in terms of can a person act of his own volition, and um, in our case, if he has an object that's stolen from him, um, physically assault the person that refuses to give back his lost object and take it from him. Is he allowed to do that, or does he have to go through a legal procedure and take the person to court? Rav Nachman says he can hit him in the face and take it. It is his. He's allowed to do the law for himself. And Rav Yudah says, no, he's not. He actually tells to base it. So now, who's right and who's wrong? You've got a situation over here where a person has an object stolen from him. Does he need to go through the judicial body to extract or not? So Rav Nachman says, no, why? Because that's enormously expensive and time-consuming, and it is his, and he was the victim. He can act on his own behalf and go and take it. He's doing something which is legal. He can prove it in the court of law. Let him just go ahead and do it and avoid the lengthy and drawn-out judicial procedure. He doesn't have to put in that effort. And Rav Yudas says, no, there's something called the law, and you have to follow it. Even though it's a bigger hassle, it's more time and money, that's just too bad. You have to do it. Now, who's right and who's wrong? So if you ask Rav Nachman, he says, well, I'm right. If you ask Rav Yudas, he says, I'm right. They're both seeing different things. In the world of Rav Yehuda, his perspective is based in has a higher priority in terms of maintaining the betterment of the community structure, of the power of law, of the accessibility to have justice being done. And therefore, you can't compromise it even when you're a victim and it would be much easier to do so. In the world of Rav Nachman, when he looks at this bigger structure, having myself empowered to do what's actually rightfully mine overrides the maintenance of a court legislated ruling now who's right well he's right and he's right they just i i can i can actually understand both those perspectives so now if you say to rav nachman what should i do you'll say do what i say you said to rav yehuda in their generation what your Yudah would say, you have to go to Basin. Good? So that's one generation. Okay? When we're looking at Rav Nachman, we're not looking from the eyes of Rav Nachman and Rav Yehuda. We are not standing outside of Rav Nachman and and we're looking at them. So our perspective is not what they're seeing, but us seeing them. So now we've got a very different perspective. We have to look at how do we look at Rav Nachman and Rav Yehuda? So we look at the argument, and our view is one step back from the front row. And that's where Allah comes into being. So the Rosh Kha says, well, I'm looking at Rav Nachman, I'm looking at Rav Yehuda. I'm looking at the way the Gemara pans out. The Gemara brings multiple questions against Rav Yehuda, and they don't seem to be answered well. They seem to be simply deflected. And we have a precedent that because Rav Nachman was more daily involved in, he was a Dayan, and he was Nachis Umkididin, the Gemara says, so he has a great authority as an expert on the field, and therefore we're going to side in terms of our Psakalocha with Rav Nachman. And Rav, Rav Yudo will not be a practiced Alocha. But if you go back in time and you say, Rav Yudo, what should I do? Rav Yudo will say to you, go to court. And you'd live by his teaching. I don't know if that's uh, helped you, but we've...